You're listening to Simpler One Earth Living from Jubilee One Earth Economics and Simple Living Works with co-hosts Lee Van Ham and Jerry Iverson. So many voices tell us that saving life on our planet requires a whole different economy, a whole different way of thinking. Now, have you heard of uh, renegade economics, for example? Can you describe it? Or have you heard of the donut, as in donut economics? How might staying in the dough of the donut be a model for us in our work in the world? Well, stay with us. Meet our guest, Della Duncan, and nourish your mind, heart, and soul. Greetings, Jerry, from San Diego and from Jubilee One Earth Economics. And greetings to you, Lee, from Paso Robles, California, and Simple Living Works. In the Simpler One Earth Living podcast, we're committed to living well and not to exceed the capacities of our one planet home. We want to live in full interdependence with trees, soils, plants, water, animals, all the ecosystems that sustain life. We experience the sacred in all that is. Humanity needs a lot of help to get to such one earth living. So we seek out others with a similar commitment and invite them to be guests on this podcast. In this episode, we speak with Della Duncan, who describes herself as a renegade economist. She'll tell us what that means. Her goal is to create islands of alternative economics in the ocean of capitalism that fits so well with this podcast, because as hosts, we think of ourselves as being one of those islands. Della hosts the Upstream podcast about economic systems change. She's also a Right Livelihood coach, a senior fellow of social and economic equity at the International Inequalities Institute in the London School of Economics, the course development manager of Friedhof Capra's Copper Course on the System's View of Life, a co-founder of the California Donut Economics Coalition, and an alternative economics consultant. Let's get right into the pre-recorded conversation with Lee and Della that happened just a few days ago. Della, I'm delighted to meet you, having heard about you through uh, my daughter, Lauren, who we just did a podcast uh, episode with last month. Um, so uh, I'm glad that you're able to be with us today and talk about um, the various things you're doing in the world, which from what I know about them, I'm quite interested and I suspect listeners will be too. So uh, let's just start off with, with the, the self-identifier you use. Uh, you call yourself a renegade economist. Uh, which attracts me immediately, but what, what, how did you come to that? What do you mean by that? And so on. Yes, and good to be with you as well. So renegade economist is a phrase that I actually uh, borrowed or got from economist Kate Rayworth, who's known for donut economics. She recently wrote a book called Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And the main title is Donut Economics. And she had been described as a renegade economist in some, some writing somewhere about the book and about her work. And I thought, oh, I love that. I want to be a renegade economist. So it's an aspiration more than anything. 
But yeah, so I identify as a renegade economist and what that means, because sometimes people say, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. That looks like being a alternative economics consultant. So a post-growth, post-capitalist economics consultant for businesses and organizations. That looks like teaching alternative economics. So Buddhist economics, feminist economics, new economics, next economy, solidarity economics, cooperative economics in places all around the world. I'm a researcher at the London School of Economics. I work with Fritjof Capra, a systems theorist on his systems view of life course. I'm a right livelihood coach, right livelihood coach, where I work with individuals on matching their work with their values and aspirations for contributing to the world. And I host the Upstream podcast, uh, telling stories in terms of documentaries and having conversations with folks about economic systems change. So that's what being a renegade economist looks and feels like to me on a daily basis. Wow, uh, thank you. That's really, really helpful. Um, we, uh, on this podcast a few months ago, interviewed um, Brenda Weiss, uh, who teaches in the in Wheaton College in Massachusetts. And uh, she identifies as a feminist economist and has for a long time. And she explained also how, where that kind of fits in the spectrum as she understands a variety of, of economic approaches. And, and, and I'd like, if, you, if there's something more for you to say around, so where do you see yourself between, I don't know if you would call it classical economics on, one side uh, that starts off with scarcity and goes on from there. Uh, and, uh, and I don't know, maybe on the other side is, is other end is where uh, we're living in the abundance of, of what our planet uh, offers us and finding really um, happy ways to do it. I don't know if that's a good spectrum. You can redefine the spectrum and you're placing it. I view a global sea of capitalism, and we can even say more explicitly neoliberal capitalism, mm -hmm. with many islands of alternatives. And mm -hmm. these islands of alternatives are acupuncture points or leverage points for systems change in many of the areas of neoliberal capitalism. And so I see many islands of alternatives, including those which I mentioned, feminist economics, ecological economics, Buddhist economics, or eco-spiritual economics in general, cooperative economics, solidarity. There's so many, right? And I see them all as islands of alternatives. And my work is to uplift those stories and those practitioners in those islands and to bridge those islands, to see the relationality and to see that when we view capitalism as this all-encompassing, pervasive, dominant thing, we actually give it more power than we ought to. And when we recognize all the ways that we participate in alternative economic systems every day, then we actually give power to those islands of alternatives and we move collectively in our ways of acting in our day-to-day -day lives, but also in our movements towards a post-capitalist economy that is more supportive of thriving for both people and the planet. Well, I just absolutely love that. Uh, this an idea of islands, uh, you know, in this sea of, uh, of kind of hyper-capitalism. Um, and, and growth economics. And so, uh, yeah, all these islands have various identities and converge a lot. Um, 
I, I work from an angle where I, I guess our name has, well, we, we talk about being uh, a one earth jubilee economics. So we emphasize the one earth and the jubilee. And I don't know that we really see ourselves as an, well, we do see ourselves as an alternative economics, but I think, uh, and, and we believe in, in our case also for people who are interested that it, that it, uh, is the is an economic a variety of economic structures that are found in the Jewish uh, scriptures and, and and Jewish and Christian scriptures uh, pretty much overlooked by both of those religions uh, basically not taught uh, uh, in fact many of them teach capitalism as as the way and it, so it's very interesting that the spiritual path out of which um, the economics that we talk about in One Earth Jubilee is, is ignored by the religions that have at one time embraced them. Uh, although they, I think these, what we talk about really comes out of, out of all of nature itself, not any one particular spiritual path. Well, uh, let's move on. I, this is about interviewing you, not for me to go on like that. So uh, you've been, uh, I've been reading recently, oh, I don't know, in the last year or so, about donut economics. I mean, it, it immediately catches my attention. Uh, these are the economic ideas of Kate Rayworth, and I've learned a little bit about her, but I think you know a whole lot more about her. So let's just start off by asking you, who is she? Yes, happy to speak about this. So Kate Rayworth, who I mentioned earlier, a renegade economist, She's based in the UK. She is affiliated with Oxford University. And she really would not describe herself as a classically trained economist, but someone who deeply cares about interrogating and challenging dominant economic thinking. And as I mentioned, she wrote this book recently, Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. And I really recommend it because it's all these ways of rethinking economics. And in that, one thing that she speaks about is how images are a very powerful tool for changing minds. And she speaks about if folks listening may think about economics, what image would come to your mind? And a lot of folks might say the supply and demand curve, where you have a graph and you have the supply curve and you have the demand curve and they meet at a particular point and it's seen as kind of a place of equilibrium. And she says that this is an image that a lot of folks think about when they think about traditional economic thinking. But then she goes underneath that and she says, what are the assumptions about economics that are embedded in that graph? One of them is that uh, economics is value free and it's, uh, you know, like a math or a science where it can be quantified and mathematized and and without human intervention, it, it kind of flows naturally like physics does. And there's these laws of economics, things like that. And she also goes into what are the beliefs that we have about who we are as humans that are that underpin mainstream economic thinking, this concept of homo economicus, that we are all rational self-interested beings. And that rational self-interest is actually what's for the better of the economy as a whole. So she interrogates and unpicks all this. This is why she's called a renegade economist. And she then offers a different image. So an image representing a change in the goal of economic systems from 
just growth in GDP, which is the total exchange of goods and services, gross domestic product, instead of the growth of that one magical number, she says, what if the goal of an economy at all levels, local, national, international, was the meeting of human needs equitably while being in, in relation and cognizant of the needs of the planet? So she offers us this image called the donut. And inside the donut, if you imagine a hole of the donut, she has kind of a little bit of like a pie. It has these lines to it. And that is the meeting of human needs. So there are needs like access to jobs, access to water, education, adequate healthcare, et cetera. And they come from the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And she says, you know, one of the goals of an economy is to meet those human needs for everyone of the population. And then on the outer ring of the donut, she has the nine planetary boundaries, which come from a group of scientists, um, Rockstrom et al. And they're in the Stockholm Resilience Center in Sweden. And they, they say that our planet can sustain a certain level of impact in these nine areas, which include things like biodiversity loss, ocean acidification, carbon emissions, aerosol loading, so our planet can sustain some impact or change in these areas. However, there are certain points that if we go beyond them, we go beyond the carrying capacity of our current planetary state, and it could tip us, they're tipping points, it tips us into alternative states of our planetary systems. And so she says that this donut offers us a new goal of our economic systems. How do we meet the needs of humans while being in consideration of the needs of the planet. So she offered this in this book. And then there's something called the Donut Economics Action Lab, which is an online community. Anyone can join, you can join for free. And it's a place to make sense of the donut wherever you are. So I am part of the California Donut Economics Coalition. We, uh, we founded maybe two years ago now all volunteers, and we are creating a donut selfie for the state of California. So we're saying, how do we meet, or how can we measure the needs of the humans in California? How are we doing? You know, who has access to water? Who doesn't? Who has jobs? Who doesn't? Et cetera. And then what are the planetary boundaries that we are exceeding in, in California? And again, the goal is that we measure this. We do a selfie, a donut selfie. And then the goal is that can we get California within the actual donut part, which Kate Rayworth says is the safe and just space for humanity. So we are working in California on that. However, there's other groups all over the world. There's a donut group in Amsterdam. There's one in London and many other places in the world. And there's new ones popping up every day. So it is a very... A participatory process and a very exciting process. People are so inspired to get involved and to make sense of this wherever they are. Mm -hmm. um, so you said that um, just now that this is happening in a lot of different places uh, and you indicated that in California, you're part of a coalition where people can uh, connect. Uh, if people live in other states, cities, do you is there any way to find out if there's a donut uh, group meeting there? Can you help us on that? Yes. So the Donut Economics Action Lab is something that if anyone on this call searches, they can find the platform. When you join the platform, again, it's free. 
you put your name and information, and then you can search any and all groups that are existing. And so you'll find the California Donut Economics Action uh, Coalition that I'm a part of. You will also find whether there's any meetups or groups or discussions happening wherever you are based. And if there's not, you can suggest it and you can create an Eventbrite and a meetup for wherever it is that you want to look at. And they're nested systems, right? So I could have one in San Francisco where I am. I could have a uh, San Francisco donut. How is San Francisco doing in meeting human needs and then in relation to the to the ecological needs of my area? And then I could do it bioregionally. I could do it by state. I could do it nationally. How's the U.S. doing? And then we can do it you know, by our parts of the world and then we can do it internationally. So people can get involved in any level of mm-hmm. effect that they want to be a part of. Yeah, is there is there a um I don't know what how far you've gotten in the California uh donut group, but uh I had read about Amsterdam that they were um uh had very quickly actually caught on to this that they were very open to this. I don't know if that that's maybe an overstatement. But do you know uh how that's being uh, received and implemented there in the Netherlands? First, in the in the show notes, I'll share an article that I wrote, which is how to how to measure the donut in your community. I wrote an article about this, so I will okay. share that with folks listening. Um, and and that really goes over what we did in California and how it's going here. In terms of Amsterdam, what I will say is the configuration of who is involved in these different projects varies. And in Amsterdam, they have city uh, governance folks involved, which is very helpful. In California, we are more lawyers, activists, teachers, practitioners. We don't have anyone yet who's a part of our state government. We do hope to bring in folks eventually. So I would say there's differing uh, configurations of the teams. But in Amsterdam, yes, they have the local government involved, which is really helpful. And so they, as a government, can then say, look, the donut is the new goal of the Amsterdam economy. And then that can help set policy. It can help with decision making. And it can help with all the partnerships that they're a part of. How can we collectively, led by the government, get the city of Amsterdam within the donut? So here uh, is an example uh, Della, um, in California, I, I live two miles away from the community of Lemon Grove. One of our Jubilee Circle uh, participants is on the city council. Um, and um, we have gradually over the last year or two uh, increased our engagement with various uh, civic and local activities. Um, so, is it can, can I'll just say Lemon Grove, just to keep it specific. It's a, it's a community of, I think, 20,000, 30,000. Um, uh, can it profit from a donut model? Absolutely. So here's what I might suggest. I'm putting my consultant hat on for a moment. Okay, welcome. So you are the community of Lemon Grove, and you are caring about meeting the needs of your community in terms of the human needs, and you want to be in relation and in respect to the ecological needs of your community. Okay, wonderful. So one thing I might ask is, what's the goal of your economy? 
you know, and you may find that in the local government, or it may just be growth of jobs. That's usually what it is. You know, how are jobs doing? How are total sales doing? There's measurements for GDP, but at local level. So I would say, okay, so that's a challenge, what the existing goal is. So how could you make that more ecological, more equitable, more just? So you could adopt the donut. So you could have a group that either goes to your local government and says, hey, what if level, uh, sorry, what if Lemon Grove was a donut city or is it a town city? Um, yeah, town? I don't know. 30,000 people. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> so what if Lemon Grove was a, was a, a donut city? So then you, as the, the people proposing to the government, the government could take that on. They can have a subgroup. Maybe they already have researchers or ethnographers or folks who are doing some of that work. They can do the measurements. They can draw from their own data that they already collect or their partners. And then they can measure the donut selfie for Lemon Grove. And then they can utilize that to guide the work that they do as the local government. You also could say as a, you know, as a, as an activist group or as a local group, community group, you could say, we'll do that for you. And you mm. can work in collaboration and you can measure the donut selfie and then you can sh share it with them. This is how Lemon Grove is doing. This is where we need to improve. And you could suggest that. And you could join the Donut Economics Action Lab for support in how are other similar sized communities measuring these things? What are the ways that we're looking at planetary boundaries, but at local levels? So you could get a lot of information, support technologically, et cetera, um, for your local place. So absolutely, you could absolutely do this. I will add, just because like I said, I'm a pluralist and I'm thinking about many islands of alternatives, that I wanna, I wanna say that the donut is just one model of an mm. alternative goal for the economy. I'm actually a gross national happiness master trainer. So I have the gross national happiness from the kingdom of Bhutan. I have that one as well. That one's more spiritual based, has more of a survey of the population. It's a little bit different. There's also the economy for the common good, which is in Austria. There's the Wales Wellbeing Act. There's so many different ones. Buen Vivir in Latin and South America. Why do I mention this? Because all of these, again, are ways to change the goal of an economy from blind growth that is harmful for people on the planet to something more in connection and in alignment with human thriving and planetary thriving. So I, I mentioned that too, because sometimes your community of Lemon Grove may look at the donut and say, some of these things resonate and some of them don't. So you all could create your own language. Sometimes people like the word happiness as the goal. Some people like well-being. Some people might resonate with the donut. So I would just encourage you to tailor the data collection and the wording, the languaging to what resonates. So it has to be both able to connect with these larger, this larger movement of changing the goal of an economic system to be at one planet carrying capacity and customized to place. Because customization to place is what'll make it really be something that folks want to engage in mm. um, and folks feel a part of. So I just want to clarify that a little bit. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Um, and uh, just to add, we have two circles working, two Jubilee circles working in Mexico, one in uh, Chiapas in the city of San Cristobal and another one in uh, a village in Puebla called San Mateo. And, and they are very much involved in, while well, they call it variously cultural economics and, and solidarity economics. Um, so uh, this this uh, may fit may fit them very well too. 
Uh, so thank you. We'll return momentarily to this conversation with Della Duncan. We're in holiday season and every holiday needs to be reinterpreted in the light of the climate breakdown underway. We have resources to help reinterpret the holidays. First, there's Lee's book, The Liberating Birth of Jesus, a birth story able to reverse the earth's perils. It clearly shows how the birth stories of the Gospels can make a big difference in reversing what's happening on our planet today into all of life. You can hear Lee interviewed about the book in an earlier podcast by using the link in this episode's show notes. Read reviews at theoneearthproject.com slash books. Order a copy directly from Jubilee or from various suppliers on the internet. The first five orders Jubilee receives from listeners will be free. Just ask. Also, Simple Living Works offers hundreds of free resources for individuals, families, and congregations who have a more generous, much less consumer-oriented Christmas. Just visit simplelivingworks.org and click on free resources in window number one. Now let's return to our conversation with Della Duncan. Well, I want to move on. Uh, you mentioned earlier uh, your Upstream podcast. And um, so there it says that you tell stories on economic uh, system change. And system change is uh, such a big deal. And you have a, a master's degree from Schumacher College in, in systems change, I think. Um, <clears throat> Well, can you tell us a story or two? Whet our appetite to, to watch the Upstream podcast. Yeah, so I was in San Jose, California. I was working at a nonprofit and I was feeling heartbroken by how little funding the work that we were doing. We were working in a rape crisis center. The work that we were doing had, the value of the work that we were doing had in our local economy. And I was feeling concerned by this. And while I was there, one of our leaders of the organization told us the upstream metaphor. And they said that the metaphor is from public health. And the idea is that you're standing at the bank of a river and you see someone float by who's drowning. So you jump in to save them and pull them to shore. But then you look up and you see more people floating down the river drowning. So you jump in to pull them to shore. Pretty soon there's all these people floating down the river drowning. You call for help, you get others involved. But eventually, some of you have to go upstream to figure out why is everyone falling in in the first place. So I first heard this metaphor to be, why do we not just support survivors of sexual violence on the hotline and in the courtrooms, but we need to go upstream to figure out why does violence happen in our communities and how can we prevent it? So I heard this metaphor, which was very powerful. But as I mentioned, I was more heartbroken or touched by the, the fact that our work had little value in the economy that we were embedded in. So I went on a journey upstream from that moment, and I've been on that journey ever since. Why is it that our economy values what it values? Why is it not providing health for the planet and for people? Why is it not equitable? So what is wrong with our current economic system? So I've been on a journey upstream since I heard that metaphor. That journey upstream led me to a place called Schumacher College, founded by a former Jain monk, Satish Kumar, who walked around the planet for two years without any money, 
just purely resting in the web of life and the kindness of others. And it was a peace pilgrimage around the world. So he's a very special person, pretty amazing person. He founded Resurgence and Ecologist magazine. He's written several books and he founded Schumacher College. He named Schumacher College after his dear friend, E.F. Schumacher, who's a development economist from the 1970s, who he had a deep experience in Burma where he was sent to help the economy grow because that's what a development economist does. But he had this awakening, this spiritual awakening where he said, you know what, actually people here don't want to just consume more and have more and more material wealth. They actually find happiness in having less and less. And they find happiness in other more holistic ways, like the quality of their relationships, their free time, their connection with their spirituality. So he had this real awakening and he wrote this book called Small is Beautiful, Economics as if People Matter. And this book and Schumacher inspired Satish Kumar to found this college. So the college is an eco monastery school, vegetarian, like regenerative agriculture grown food right next to a forest. It is so beautiful and so special. And it's been the home of many amazing teachers, including Frithjof Capra, Vanana Shiva, um, Joanna Macy, and many others around the world who've come there. So fortunately, I got to go there for my master's degree, which is actually in economics for transition. And it was called for transition because it's inspired by the transition town movement. Mm -hmm. So in Totnes, England, there's a whole movement that birthed from there around transitioning the economy from extractive growth to health and, and sustainability. And so that's called the transition movement. So that inspired the degree that I did. So I did that degree. And while I was there doing that degree, there were 15 of us in our class. And we were, we were having teachers like Kate Rayworth. She was one of our teachers, Jason Hickel, right? So many amazing teachers. And I was thinking to myself, this is brilliant. And yet not many folks know about this. And there's very few places in the world that are teaching alternative economics and not just Marxist economics, but ecological and eco-spiritual economics. So I thought, how can I share this out? with a wider group of people around the world. A podcast is the perfect medium for this. So the podcast, the Upstream podcast is about going upstream from the ecological and economic challenges of our time to the root causes. And the podcast itself are a collection of interviews with many of the folks that I mentioned. So Joanna Macy, um, we have one with Kate Rayworth and, and many others, but we also have documentaries. So that is many different voices, lots of different stories and different sound design. So I think we have 13 documentaries now at this point, and we're coming up with one every quarter. So yeah, documentaries and interviews, the Upstream podcast, and it's been a really fun way to share out what I've been learning on this journey going upstream. That's really what it has been for me. And it's been beautiful to be in connection, collaboration with folks, but also to just share in the learning and share that with others. Well, I really appreciate that that story, and um, I, I mentioned before we began uh, in, our, in, our, in our introductory conversation we had before we started recording this session that uh, I hadn't yet listened to an upstream uh, podcast, and now I want all the more to do it. So thank you for going through that. It's, it sounds like a really uh, important piece of work you're doing. 
uh, and as a way of disseminating uh, these thoughts and energies to a much wider base. Um, well, I, I want to uh, kind of round this off now. You were mentioning eco-spirituality. At various times, you referred to um, uh, how spirituality plays a part in, in systems change and transformation. Um, I, there's a lot of really toxic forms of religion or spirituality. So um, I would like you if, uh, to say just a little bit more about how uh, perhaps, I don't know if it's explicit or an underlying assumption, but how spirituality plays a part in, in uh, what you do, uh, Della. I'm happy to, yes. I really connect with eco-spirituality and it really is something very important to the work that I do. One of the most important essays that I've ever read was an essay by Danella Meadows, who was a systems theorist. She passed away, but she's just written so much beautiful things. And one of her essays is called Leverage Points, Places to Intervene in a System. And in this essay, there's 12, she ranks these leverage points. They're kind of acupuncture points for changing an economic system. And things lower down are things like fiddling with the numbers, going from 500 affordable housing units to 700. It makes a difference for those 200 people, but does it fundamentally change the system, right? Then she goes higher and higher, and I'll just focus on the top three. The third highest leverage point, changing an economic system, is changing the goal of the system. So this is the realm that we were speaking of when I mentioned donut economics, changing the goal from gross domestic product to something like the donut or gross national happiness, well-being economy, et cetera. Very important, but not the highest. The second highest leverage point, she says, is changing the paradigm or the worldview of the economic system. This relates to that Einstein quote, you can't solve a problem with the same level of thinking that created it. It also connects with this quote by uh, Robert Persig in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. He says, uh, if you tear down a factory, but you don't destroy the quality of thinking that created it, a new factory will simply pop up in its place. If you take down a dictatorship, but you don't destroy the quality of thinking that created it, a new one will simply pop up in its place. So it's this idea that our, our worldviews, our paradigms, our ways of viewing ourselves, nature, and our relationship to one another are very important. This is when I go upstream, this is what I see, is how are we viewing ourselves, each other, and our relationship to the more than human world? So this is an inherently spiritual realm. Just to give folks the highest, in case they're curious, the highest leverage point is to transcend paradigms. So to hold them lightly. And this is important because what it says is not to proselytize or be dogmatic or think that we are better than in our thinking. So to keep what in, in Buddhism we might call a beginner's mind um, or transcendent of views, right? To hold them lightly, to not identify with them, right? Not grasp and identify and hold tightly. So that's the highest, but just coming back down to that second highest leverage point, this really is the realm of spirituality. And when I say eco-spiritual, I mean a view of spirituality that sees all, all earth as sacred, all life as sacred, that sees um, other than human beings, more than human beings as beings, right? As alive nature as having inherent value beyond usefulness to humans. Also seeing our relationship with one another, not as competitors or, 
you know, folks that we have to guard against, but collaborators that we are interconnected as in a web of life, right? And then seeing ourselves as having desire for contributing to the world. That's why this right livelihood view really connects with me. Right livelihood is taking our spirituality off the cushion or the pew and into our lives. Okay. I do want to mention though, one of my favorite ways of thinking about eco-spirituality, I think you'll appreciate it because you mentioned um, Christianity and uh, Judaism. David Loy is a wonderful thinker. And one of the things that he talks about is when are religions and spiritual traditions helpful and when are they harmful for the planet? So he says they are harmful when they view that there is this world and then there's another world. Right. And this is in mo- this is in a lot of religions. It's not just Christianity, the concept of heaven. It's also in uh, in Islam. Right. The, there's like a concept of another world, even in Buddhism, the concept of the wheel of samsara and then enlightenment being kind of a separate plane or a, a different place. So this concept of a religion or a spiritual tradition is harmful when it views that there's this world and then there's another separate one that we will either become enlightened and go to or we will die and go to or whatever because that view then creates our relationship with this current world to be one of it's disposable it's not the real deal it's not what's truly sacred we can destroy it we can pollute it and it it doesn't matter the second harmful point is when we view um self-salvation as what is the goal or importance that I need to work on myself and I need to pray and, and, and work hard so that I can be saved or liberated or become enlightened. It's a very self-egotistical view, obviously, because it separates us and because it encourages the ego and, and selfish thought and thinking, right? Okay. So then when is religion or spiritual tradition helpful? It's helpful when it views this earth as sacred this world as sacred and beautiful, not that there's this separation, but that this world is beautiful, is sacred, is important. And then the second one is that it views collective liberation or collective salvation. There's in Buddhism, the eco-sattva, right? And, and in Judaism and Christianity as well, this concept of like being a good Samaritan or being, um, yeah, collective liberation, solidarity, a sense of uh, collective liberation. So why I offer this is because it actually doesn't say there's some religions that are bad and some that are good. It says within spiritual traditions, there's a healthy and a, and a non-healthy. So wherever you are listening, um, I encourage you, you don't have to go beyond the, tra- the tradition that you were born into or that you have really come to feel at home in, but where are those paradigms and worldviews supportive? of human and planetary health and well-being, and where are they possibly not so helpful? So I offer that. And then finally, I'll just end with, uh, so after this call, I'm going to start preparing for a work that reconnects retreat this weekend. So I would be remiss not to mention Joanna Macy is one of my main eco-spiritual teachers. And she is a, a woman living in Berkeley, California, and she is really eco-spiritual in many ways. And I would just encourage folks listening to check out her and her work. And in this weekend retreat, we're going to be exploring eco-spirituality and eco-grief and also utilizing our pain as a motivation for acting on behalf of the web of life. So just to share that personal connection and also one tool or modality for working with some of these themes, shifting our paradigm, working with our eco grief, honoring it, and then reconnecting and contributing in the web of life.
this has been really wonderful, stimulating, really uh, giving specific examples, connecting it to the big picture. Della, what a treat to meet you in this way and to have this conversation with you. I just feel greatly enriched by it. And uh, I can't wait to have uh, more opportunities to uh, be in relationship, whether it's actually face-to-face -face or whether it's just reading and, and, and listening to your podcast. But thank you so much for this time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much as well. And thank you for this work that you're doing. And I will say that I really do see your daughter as a collaborator, as a comrade in this and really admire the work that she does in the eco-spiritual chaplaincy realm. So mm -hmm. it feels like such a treat to get to meet you and just wishing you and your family and the <laughs> Lemon Grove community deeply well. All right. Uh, we work well beyond Lemon Grove, as I said, in Mexico and all, but Lemon Grove is, seems like a manageable close-by entity that maybe we can influence. All right, thank you so much. We'll leave it at that for today. Thank you. You've been listening to Lee's conversation with renegade economist Della Duncan. Have you listened to our recent episodes? In August, Brenda Weiss on feminist econ economics is creating just systems that meet current crises. In September, Eric Lecomte, forgive us our debts, woes and wins in canceling student debt. In October, Encuentro, a US-Mexico conversation on living the alternative worldview we call One Earth Jubilee. And in November, Lauren Van Ham, radical interreligious cooperation is working to save life on our planet. Do listen. You're sure to pick up thoughts you'll value. We certainly did as we created those episodes. You can subscribe to this podcast under the name Simple Living Works at your favorite podcast service. Individual episodes are available at Jubilee's new website, oneearthjubilee.com, and also simplelivingworks.org, window number three. Urge your friends to do the same. You're welcome to subscribe to Simple Living Works' various free publications. For our monthly e-news, send subscribe to simplelivingworks at yahoo.com. For our weekly email that provides brief daily simpler living nudges, send nudge to the same address, simplelivingworks at yahoo.com. Please give us your thoughts on this subjects in this episode. Leave a message on Jubilee One Earth Economics and Simple Living Works Facebook pages. Until next time, this is Jerry Iverson of Simple Living Works with co-host Lee Van Ham of Jubilee One Earth Economics, wishing you well as we strive together to bring simpler One Earth living into being for the common good. Can